Thank you. Good morning, everybody. How are we? Let me have a look at you. Gosh, those lights are bright. Hello. It's been forever. I had a giant baby belly last time I was here, so I'm looking and seeing there's so many new faces that I don't recognize. If we haven't met before, my name's Julie, and uh, I've spent the last 17 months looking after our miracle girl, Liberty Hope, and uh, she's awesome. I love her to bits. She's great. Uh, she eats all the snacks, and uh, we love strawberries, so my berry budget, I was not like thinking that I had to budget in my weekly shop for berries, but now we do. We have a berry budget in the Grey household, and uh, she's talking, and it's really awesome, and she's just learned at Summit Weekend, she's learned to say, praise the Lord. It's the cutest thing in the world. I love it. So she asked for praise the Lord songs. So we, we watched the Elevation Praise and all that. It's really cool. It's awesome. There you go. That's nothing to do with my preach. I just thought I'd like to update you on my family. There you go. <laughs> so this morning, I'm going to preach you out, or teach you actually, out of Joshua. And um, what I'm really praying for this morning is I've prepared this word and um, prepped it for you and been praying for you this week and believing that God would move in your life. I'm really believing that you'll have some truth and perspective to see where you're placed, where God has uniquely placed you in the position in your world where you are. And so the seed of this teaching actually came out of um, when I was on the floor um, we've got a really comfy mat now. We didn't. We had tiles before, but now we have a comfy mat because bumped heads and all of that with Lib. And um, and we're, I'm lying on the floor. Lib's playing, and I was looking up at my fiddle leaf fig, which I was very proud of. Let me say because if any of you green fingered people know, Connie, you can put that um, slide up for me, the title slide. And if you green fingered people know that fiddle leaf figs are very fickle. And, uh, and you have to have real courage to take one on in your home because if you move them, they get stressed and they die. And um, so this one has been in my house for four and a half years now. So I'm really proud of myself because I'm not naturally green fingered. Any plant that has survived in my household is because it copes with neglect. So, so I'm looking up at this fiddly fig and I'm looking at the underside of the leaf. And I'm like, wow. This leaf is amazing. Like there's veins and, and it's like all beautiful. And I've, because I've never looked there before because I've never been lying on my floor before. But because my um, circumstances have changed, I'm now at home and my position changed because I'm on the floor. And just as I'm having this moment of wonder and awe at God's creation, Lib's really into reading books. And so the spine of a book came careering towards my eye and I was like whoa I had to kind of like sort things out before I, I lost a retina and um, and in that moment as my position changed and my environment has changed it's allowed me to lie on my floor and look at the underside of my fiddle leaf fig the shift in the position brought a new perspective to my life I've looked at this fiddly fig, because it's right next to our telly. I've looked at it, I added it up 1,460 times before that day. And yet I'd never seen the underside of the leaf because of the way that the plant is. And it was the shift in position that changed my perspective. And that is my prayer for us today, is not that I'm going to get you out of your seat and get you to physically move, but as I open the word of God and we submit our lives to that today, that there's a shift in your heart and in your mind, in your soul, in your spirit, that your perspective on things in your world changes. 
Because when our perspective shifts, then our position can change as well. So let's pray as we come to the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you loved us enough to give it to us. And that it's living and active and rich and wonderful and life-giving. And so this morning as we sit under it, as we submit our lives to it, we pray, Holy Spirit, you just direct it to every heart as they have need. Lord, you know what's going on in the room. You know what everybody brought in this morning. You know what's on their heart and their mind and their spirit. And Holy Spirit, I pray you just settle our hearts and our minds right now. And we just take this time to submit to you and listen to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So just a wee bit of context before we get into the scripture. So we're going to be in Joshua 2. If you're new to church or you've not got to this part in your Bible yet, or you maybe needed a refresher, this is what's going on. God has chosen um, a guy called Abraham, and he said to Abraham, through you, I'm going to create a nation, and through that nation, the whole world will be blessed. So he started off as one guy, and then his family was chosen, and that's what happened. God blessed them, and they multiplied, they went into Egypt to um, uh, escape a famine, and the blessing of God was upon them, and they grew so much that they grew into a nation. And then as a nation, they were like a nation within a nation, and they were oppressed. They were put to slavery. And they cried out to God and said, God, help us. And God sent a deliverer to them in the name of Moses. And he led them out through lots of different things. But he led them out um, out of Egypt and across the, um, the Red Sea. And then they, they come to the place where God has said to them, I'm going to give you this land as your inheritance. I'm going to give this land to you. And then this will be where you work out and you demonstrate what it looks like to be a nation under the hand and the favor of God. And they get right to the edge of the land and then they stuff it up. <laughs> they, they, they're right there. And then it just, they just mess it up royally. And what that means is that they've then got to wander around for 40 years in the desert until the entire generation that was just about to go in, everybody who didn't believe that God could do what he said he was going to do, they had to die so that a new generation could come up that were positioned for faith. And so they wander around, lots of amazing things happen. Um, and then there's a big leadership change right before we're about to read. So Moses dies. Joshua becomes the leader of the people. And this big change has just happened. And so the Joshua one is basically Joshua kind of recapping everything that's happened. And then the people say to Joshua right at the end of Joshua chapter 1, As we were with Moses, so we'll be with you. Which was true. That is exactly what they did. But if you're Joshua, he should have said at that point, Stop. I would like you to be different than you were with Moses, with me, because with Moses, you were disobedient and you whinged a lot and you didn't do the right thing. So that should have been Joshua's first clue that things are maybe not going to work out the way that you think your leadership five-year plan is going to work out, Joshua. So they've just said that to him. And then we're going to get into Joshua 2. Let's read. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. I'll just pause there for a moment. So the place where Israel is, so there's, there's um, Jericho, then there's the Jordan River, 
And then there's this place, and I, that's the only time you're going to hear me say that word because it feels like I'm swearing from stage. Even though I know I'm not, but it just, I can't say it. I don't like it. So they're in that place, and that's where there's a lot of history there. This is not a neutral place for them. They've been here before. And in that place was where a guy called Balaam was hired to curse them as a whole nation, and he couldn't do it. Just blessing kept coming out of his mouth. So this has been a place of significant blessing for them. It's also been a place where, as a nation, they absolutely failed. They got into worshipping demonic gods. They um, It was terrible. They got into... Um, intermarriage and different relationships with women who they were forbidden from because the Lord wanted to keep them um, pure as a nation and set apart for him. And they really disobeyed that. And because of that disobedience, 24,000 people in a day died. So it's a really significant place where they are. It's a place of blessing. It's a place of judgment, this place where they are now. It's the place where Moses did his leaving speech, like Moses' leaving party happened there, where he gathered everybody together and was like, listen, guys, we, we did our best, but we were really messed up, and please do things differently next time. It's the place where Joshua has just done his sort of, you know, we're doing our takeover speech. So this is not a neutral place where they camped. It's a place with lots of symbolism and history, and it's a place where every person would have known somebody who died in that place. And they're camped there, and they're looking over the Jordan, and in the distance, they can see the city of Jericho. And so I want you to think about that as we read through this story. And there's echoes in that first verse for the people who are hearing this story. They're immediately thinking, we've been here before. And they'd be right because they have. This is where they'd gotten up to 40 years previously. And then Moses had said, right, we're going to gather 12 guys together, one from every tribe. And we're going to send you out, and I want you to go spy out the whole land. And this whole month expedition happened where they went out, and then they brought back some amazing grapes and lots of things. And all of that happened there. And so as Joshua, as the account tells us, Joshua sent two men out secretly from that place. And I kind of think that that's because Joshua, he was one of the spies. He was one of the original guys who was sent out to go spy the land. He's had 40 years to think on that experience. He's had 40 years. It's like doing a group project that went terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. 12 of you went out. The job was to go spy out the land, see what's happening, come back, bring a report. They brought back a negative report apart from Joshua and Caleb who said, we can certainly take the land. The other 10 were like, nah, the guys are really big in there. I'm really scared. They've got good grapes. But aside from that, it's a no-go, guys. And so they didn't go in. And Joshua's had 40 years to think about, if I'm going to lead things, how will I do it? Will I do it the same? Will I do it differently? So instead of publicly saying, all right, 12 guys together, out we go. We're going to go spy out the land. He sends two out, and he sends them secretly. And he doesn't send them everywhere. He sends them especially to Jericho. Two, 12 were announced and said, no, we can't. Two were secretly sent out, and spoiler alert, they come back and say, yes, we absolutely can. I'm kind of guessing if you're Joshua, you're going to pick the most faith-filled guys that you know. 
because they've been here before and it went really wrong and everybody had to die because of that decision. So would you not pick the most faith-filled, positive, the glass isn't half full, the glass is overflowing, we have all the glasses that you need, the water's great, like it doesn't matter, like we, we're really going to go for it. Would you not pick those guys to go in and be like, we absolutely can, can, yes, yes, we can do this, guys, because they need to get it right this time. Verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. And I used to think, how on earth did the king know? Like, you know, they're spies. They're supposed to be sneaky. And like immediately they go in and then the king's like, there's two guys here, and, and, this is, and this is exactly what they're here to do. And he's not wrong. He's exactly right. Like, I'm thinking these, they may be full of faith, but they're not very sneaky. How on earth did, like, the news get around this city so quick? But it's because in my head I was imagining, like, a mini Brisbane, like, you know, a mini, like a city. When you think of a city, you think big, right? But instead of thinking of, like, tens of thousands of people, you need to think in the thousands rather than tens of thousands. Jericho is actually is still standing. It's the oldest city, established city in the world that is still standing. And it's rather than think, like, massive, sprawling, you know, metropolis, think a few football fields. So it is a city, but it's a city of the time. So it's not as big as probably what you're imagining in your head. So it's not too... Um, beyond the bounds of possibility that they would notice that these two guys dressed differently from everybody else come to their town and then news travels fast and it gets its way all the way up to the king. Verse 4, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, she's saying to the king now, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she lay, had laid in order to the roof. So flax was used for materials and um, paper and all different things. So it's drying up on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, for this bit, I want you to, if you know your Bible, think all the way back to when Moses was a baby. The shades of this story in that one and vice versa. So in the story of Moses, we hear uh, this tiny little account about these two midwives who defied the Pharaoh, defied the king of Egypt. And the king of Egypt said to them, we want you to kill all the baby boys. And they defied a direct order and lied to his face and were like, the Israelite women are really vigorous, like we're trying to kill them, but by the time that they get there, the babies are there and we can't do anything about it. And they defy this direct order. And the writer here wants us to be starting to make some of those connections. That this is a significant turning point in this story. If this goes wrong, the whole story is different. So they want us to know that this is significant. This woman, Rahab, does the same thing. She defies the king's order and lies to his face because she does know where they're from, as we're going to find out. She does know what they're there for, and she tells three lies. She says, I don't know where they're from. They went out. They're not. 
and I don't know where they went. Well, she does know where they're going to go. And so she lies to her king, and she risks her life in defiance of a direct order. She risks her family's life, actually, and barefaced lies to the king. Now, culturally, if you had strangers in your home, you were liable for them. Like, you had a responsibility to feed them, look after them. But she goes further than is culturally expected and is culturally normal. She risks her and her family's life on behalf of these guys that she's just met. And in verse 6, it says that when it says she brought them up to the roof, that, that if we were to put that a bit more literally in the text, it would say she caused them to ascend. So I want you to get this picture of, like, they come into a house, and she's like, get up on the roof. Like, go, 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 go. Like, no time to waste. Up you go. Up to the drying flax. And in verse 6, where it says she brought them up to the roof, or she, you know, put them up on the roof. And then in our English version, to make it make sense, it says, and hid them with the stalks of flax. But in the original language, it actually says she hid him. Now, that's not a mistake. The Bible's not bad at grammar. That's an intentional part that the writer's trying to get us to think back. This is like another story that we've heard before. This is like Moses. We've had two women defying the king of Egypt. We've had this woman defying the king of her country. We've had people being hidden in flax. Moses was hidden in the bulrushes. And so there's the writer, we don't need to make too much of it, but the writer is intentionally trying to get us to see there's a bit of parallel going on here. This is a significant thing that's happening. Shades of Moses being hidden in the reeds by his sister. The writers want us to make those connections, to see this is important. Something big is going down. Something is important here. Somebody needs protecting. And that person is going to bring something about. So let's just review everybody's positions in the story before we get to the crux of the account. And then we can work out what that means for us. So the nation of Israel, they're camped in that place. It's a place of death. It's a place of disobedience. It's also been a place of blessing for them. It must have been deja vu for them because they've been here as a nation before. They've got a new leader in charge. They're in transition. That's always a tricky time. And they're sat, or, you know, sat, stood, camped, set up shop. And they're looking, and they're looking over the Jordan. And they can see Jericho in the distance. The promised land that was promised to them as a nation, that they've had to wait 40 years to get to this point. And let me tell you, I'm sure their parents talked to them about their failure and how when it comes around, guys, don't do the same thing that we did. Get it right. Like, do it differently, please, for goodness sake. And so they're sat there looking over. Joshua, I feel for Joshua in this story, newly appointed leader, and he's taken over from Moses. That's, that's like... It, Moses is the guy. He's the guy. He is the guy. And you've just taken over from him. And the whole nation is now looking to you and being like, what's your move? What are you going to do? Let me tell you, Joshua is stressed. There is some cortisol going on in his body. His first act of leadership is done in secret. Nobody knows what Joshua is doing at this point. They're all just camped there. And I'm sure there would have been some people going, What's Joshua doing? Like, have we heard from him yet? Like, are we doing anything? Like, what's the plan? Like, we're here, and what are we going to do? Because Joshua's enacted this plan, but nobody else aside from the two spies knows. He sent them out secretly. He's waiting in the camp, and I'm sure he's wondering, have I made the right decision here? This is my first big leadership move. This is it. 
Like, if I stuff this up, well, this is not going to go very well, is it? These two guys, have I sent these two guys out to their death? Are their heads going to come back in a bag? Like, are, are they going to go out and say, actually, no, we can't. We still can't. 40 years later, we still can't do it. He's waiting. Jericho and its people, a fortified city, very defensively strong. Nobody's just walking up to Jericho and attacking it. They're there, intentionally intimidating. You don't build high walls to be like, hey, welcome, coming in. That as a city is, don't take us on. Don't come for us. We've got high walls, think twice. Intentionally intimidating, well fortified, and yet they know that Israel's just there. Israel's just over the Jordan. A nation is just over the Jordan. Two spies in the story. At this point, they're on the roof. Their faces are pressed to the warm clay of the house. They've got itchy flax on top of them. And their lives are in the hand of a woman that they've just met, who's a prostitute, worships demon gods because she's a Canaanite. And she made them get up onto the roof quickly and then covered them over with flax. And they must be thinking, hmm, <laughs> this is maybe not how I kind of saw the day going. I bet you they're a wee bit tense. They're a little bit worried. If they've got swords with them, wouldn't you have your hand on your sword thinking, has she just gone and told the soldiers where we are and we're just going to get speared through the flax? Would that not be your thought? Thinking, what on earth is going on? We're up in this house on a roof under some flax. What is going on? We've got Rahab, Canaanite woman, prostitute. She sacrifices to demon gods. She's just lied to her king for two men she just met. And she's about to walk up the stairs for a conversation that I promise you, not one person in this story is expecting what's just about to come out of her mouth. Here's what she says. Before the men lay down, that's before they went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that's Jericho, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, and when you came out of Egypt, that was 40 years earlier, and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan of Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive, smart girl here, my father, my mothers, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. As she started talking, they must have been like, where is this going? And as that, as that monologue went on, their jaws must have just got progressively closer and closer to the floor to the point where they were like, what? 
I can't believe what I'm hearing. Now, we get familiar with it because we read our Bibles. And so we're like, but if you're the two spies, this is not how you saw this conversation going in any imagination. Rahab, if we were going to pick somebody who is the furthest away from the family of God, from the people of God, we would pick Rahab. She's a woman. She's a Canaanite. She worships and sacrifices to demon gods. Specifically, she can't be a part of the family of God. And yet, this prophetic statement comes out of her mouth. I know the Lord has given you the land. She's prophesying right there. This statement of faith comes out of her mouth. Israel, remember, they've not heard this. They're camped over the river, looking up at Jericho going, oh, no. Intentionally intimidating city. Jericho is the first place that we have to take. We've got to take this. Otherwise, it's going to go really bad. They're looking up. They're intimidated. How on earth are we going to do this? It's so fortified. And what they find out between these two foes that are there, that actually Jericho's looking at Israel going, oh, no, Israel's here. The ones who have a God that parted seas. Oh no, Israel, the God of heaven and earth. Our hearts are melting before us because, oh no, Israel's right there. In this city, they've heard these stories of how whole places have been devoted to destruction. They physically got the upper hand. There's no way that Jericho should fall. Not one way that they should fall because of their defensive systems. They can wait out. They can be sieged out. There's no way they should lose in this scenario. They've got the upper hand, but actually we find out they're all in fear. They're not in faith. They're not like, woohoo, we've got a really strong city. It's defensively awesome. We're good. They're all like, oh, my goodness, the Israelites are here. They're cowering. We could say it this way. They were grasshoppers in their own eyes. When the spies went out, the 12 spies, they came back and said, we were grasshoppers in our own eyes. Somebody in Jericho could quite easily have said that. We've got no chance. Israel's right there. The change of position from the two spies shifted their perspective entirely. There is no way those the two spies were walking up to Jericho, working out a plan, figuring out what they were going to do, that they would have predicted this that they would have said, well, we're going to go in and everyone's going to be scared of us. Everyone's going to be fearful of us. But Jericho, we find out, has had 40 years of being afraid of Israel. 40 years of being like, what kind of God is this that just parts seas so that his people can walk through? What kind of God is this that goes with them on heaven and on earth? And I just wonder, this little phrase that she says, that we know the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. I just wonder, because obviously the 40 years they were wandering around in the desert, and they must have in that 40 years, it's not that big of a desert. Me and Neil went to it. I went on honeymoon, went to Egypt, and so we were in the Sinai Desert. It's really amazing. I was thinking like rolling sand. No, it's like rocky and absolutely freezing. It's really, really cold because it's like so far above sea level. And so as they're wandering around... And they have the cloud of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. I just wonder if they'd come close enough to Jericho and at night Jericho knows that Israel's in the distance with a cloud of fire and they're like, they're back and their God is with them 
and he's a cloud of fire <laughs> at night, glowing in the distance. And as they see them wandering off when they have to go, they're like, are they going? But God is with them with a pillar of cloud. What kind of God do they serve that comes with them in a cloud of fire and a pillar of cloud by day and open seas? And how on earth are they sustaining themselves in this desert for 40 years as a nation? There's no like 7-Elevens around there. Like, how are they doing it? They're not going to other nations to ask for food. God is sorting them out. Jericho on the outside looks intimidating, but inside it's full of fear. It's full of trepidation. And Rahab has this change of position. Her soul does this 180. Because before this conversation, her family and all that she loves is under a death sentence. She would be killed with everybody else. And yet, she has this statement of faith. I know the Lord has given you the land. And she doesn't just know that. She puts that statement of faith with some courage and works. She then has some action. She sees the spies and, and she then does something about that. She puts some legs on her faith and she puts herself in this posture of humility to a God that she doesn't even serve. Rahab doesn't serve God. She doesn't know about him like the Israelites do. And yet what she does is she throws herself on the mercy of these two guys and says, I know about your God, I've seen and I've heard things, but will you spare my life and my family's life? And by all reasonable um, scenarios, the two spies should have said, that's lovely information, Rahab. Thank you for letting us know that the entire land is afraid of us and that Jericho is also afraid of us. Fab information will now kill you and your entire family because we've gotten what we need out of this scenario. And um, we don't actually want you to go and tell anybody where we are or what our plans are. So the sensible thing for the spies to do would be to get that information, lovely Rahab, slaughter her and her whole family, go back, to Jer uh, go back over to Israel and be like, it's all good, guys, let's go over. That would be totally normal in, in the, like the theatre of war at this stage. Sensible, expected, what, she sh what they should have done. And yet... Rahab throws herself on the mercy of a God that she doesn't even serve yet and says, can me and my family come in? Will you save us? We look nothing like you. We don't worship the same God as you. We don't know how any of this works. I don't have it all figured out. But we know enough to say, can we come in? Will we be saved? Can we be saved? And as the story goes on as we see. It results in salvation for her and her family. They are spared. They're actually counted as righteous. They're grafted into the family of Israel. And as sleep comes that night to the house for Rahab and the spies, I kind of think that they would both be putting their heads on pillows, well, the guys up on the roof, and thinking, this was not how I thought this day was going to go when I got up this morning. The spies, this was not how I thought the day was going to end, finding out that the whole city is scared of us. Rahab, this was not how I thought the day was going to end, my entire family having a guarantee of salvation, and yet here we are. The account concludes with some instructions by Rahab. She tells them, she keeps helping them how not to be caught, 
and then they have to go out from the city and spend three days kind of getting all the way back around to Israel so that they don't get caught. So Joshua, bless him, has to wait another three days before the good news and the instructions come. And we pick it up in verse 23. It says this. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over, that's the Jordan, and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. I see the little bit of humor that's here in the account. Just imagine, right, if you're you're the two spies and you're like, okay, great news, Joshua. It's like, it's really good. The whole country scared of us. Unexpected, I know, but it's really good. Everyone's melting. It's fab, wonderful. And he's like, great, great, guys. Tell tell me, how did it go? What happened? Like, right, well, we went up to Jericho. Good, good, good. Uh, um, And we went into the house of a prostitute. And I'm sure Joshua must have been like, Where's this story going, guys? Like, <laughs> carry on. Like, like, where is this going? I, I just think that would have been a funny conversation between us. It's nothing to do with that, but I just think it's funny. And then they said to Joshua, so they told their story. Joshua's like, good, it's got a good ending. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. That's, that's a report Joshua must have been like, oh, thank goodness. My first leadership thing has paid off. Great. He's not expecting this. Four days he's had to wait for this reconnaissance mission. And what I find so interesting is that all of this doesn't change the strategy of how they take Jericho at all. Doesn't, not one bit. They, it doesn't change the fact that they're going to march around and, and how God does it. But what it does change is how the Israelites approach the city. It does shift the Israelites' perspective when they're walking up. Because if you know that when you're walking up to the intentionally intimidating, come at us, like, give us your best shot, have a go, but our walls are really strong, but you know that inside everybody is scared of you, do you not walk a bit taller? Do you not put your kit on going, well, they look really scary, but we know they're all scared of us. Do you not put your suit on, a suit, I don't know, your kit, like all your kit and be like, come on. And as they're walking, do you not walk tall and be like, well, you look big, but we know you're actually scared of us. So we're going to stamp our feet really loudly. And when we shout, we're going to really shout and go for it. And that's all because of this one conversation with Rahab, this change of position that shifted their perspective they walk tall. And this new perspective for Rahab comes that this God, who by all rights should have completely rejected her and her family, now says, come close. Welcome in. There's room for you in the family of God. Her whole family safe from destruction. She's smart. She doesn't just say, you know, can I come in? She says, like my mum, my dad, my auntie, my sisters, my cousins, like, you know, the servants, the horses, we've got a dog and a cat with a gammy leg and like, you know, weird Bob that's around the corner. Like, let's just bring them all. Like, she, she goes for it. She lists everybody that is in her world that she cares about. She's like, I'm bringing you all in with me. She's safe from destruction. And James, 4, uh, James 2, verse 24 to 26 has this amazing little verse, tiny, tiny, tiny. I encourage you to go read it. And it talks about Rahab, and it puts her right after Abraham, in that she's mentioned in the Hall of Faith, but then there's this other little reference to her where it's talking about faith and works, and there's only Rahab and Abraham mentioned in that part. 
And the Bible says that she had faith and works, and she's commended for that. Her and Abraham, prostitute, far from God, doesn't really know anything about him, worships demonic gods, sacrifices to them, unimaginable things. And yet she had faith, she put works with it, she had courage, and the Bible says, be like this. So what has this got to do with you? I've got some questions to reflect on as we enter our new week. Are you in a place of intimidation today? And I wonder, could you shift that perspective and see the position that you are actually in? Israel and Jericho look at each other and see insurmountable foes. And yet, out of those two, Israel had a responsibility to not look at it like that way because they had the God of heaven and earth with them. It's totally logical and reasonable and right for Jericho to be scared of Israel. They should be. But Israel should never have been scared of Jericho because they have the God of heaven and earth with them. And if today you're looking at things and you're feeling intimidated and you're thinking, I can't do this, or I don't know how this is going to work out, and this problem's really big, and this person, I just can't see a way through it, could you shift your perspective to look at where you actually are, that you're the head and not the tail, that you're above and not beneath, that the God of angel armies walks with you into your workplace, that you've been equipped with everything that you need to accomplish good works that God set out in advance for you to do, that you're seated with Christ this morning, Ephesians tells us, that you don't need masses of faith, but just tiny, insignificant, small, overlookable, mustard seed-sized faith is all you need because of God, that his presence goes with you, that that workplace, that the school, that the college, that uni, that your business, that your street, whatever it is you're walking into and there's that intimidation, maybe they're intentionally intimidating and they look big and walled and you're thinking, how on earth? But walk tall this week, put your shoulders back and go, God is with me the God of heaven and earth, the God that created this intimidating person, loves them as much as he loves me, but God is with me. I'm walking into it differently. I wonder, are you in a place of waiting today? Joshua, four days, four long days for Joshua. I'm thinking he prayed a lot in those four days. Four long days for him to work out, is this leadership decision going to come off? Is it all going to play out? And in the position of waiting, I wonder, could you choose a position of humility and trust while you wait? Whatever it is you're waiting for, whether that's a doctor's report, a leadership decision, you've made a call, you've put yourself out there and you've said, I think we should do this and, it's, and you just don't know if it's going to work yet. Business plans to unfold, a child coming back to the Lord. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you're waiting for this morning, could you choose a position of humility could you wait on your knees could you wait prayerfully could you wait in humility trusting God's timing could you rest in him and his goodness and his plans and choose to fill your mind with peace instead of what ifs could you position yourself under God's hand knowing that at the right time he'll lift you up that you don't need to strive and, and 
manoeuvre and manipulate and get things in place, but just rest under his hand, knowing that if he's not promoted you, if he's not made the way, then that's actually probably for your good and you don't want to push it. Can you allow that position of humility to shift your perspective from worry to trust and say, even if none of this works out how I think, I'm still going to praise God. I'll still worship you. It may not look how I think it's going to look, but I'll still bless your name. You're still worthy of all of that, regardless of my outcome. I wonder this morning, are you scared of being sent out today? And could you choose obedience instead? Are you scared about the guilt that you feel every week when the conversation happens around the work table? What did you do on the weekend? And you choose not to say what you did at the weekend that was life-giving for you. That you'd fluff it and you say, oh, you know, I hung out with some friends and, you know, I went... And you don't just say, I went to church. And then you feel that guilt and it eats away at you in the week. I wonder if that fear is there, that fear of the unknown of what am I going to say to this person? I've got nothing in common with the people that I work with and people in uni. I don't feel comfortable being sent out to them. I don't feel like the two spies like walking up to the walled city. I don't feel comfortable with that. We don't have anything in common. They're not going to understand. Our lives are very different. They're just not interested. Their life is devoted to things so far away from God. I just don't think the conversation is going to go how I think it's going to go. But instead of all of that fear, could you choose obedience instead? Could you, like the two spies, walk up to the walled city of your workplace, your place of education, your retirement village, your family gathering, trusting that the Holy Spirit will lead you to the right person at the right time, and you might actually be so surprised at who is closer to the God than you could ever imagine, that you might actually find that they've been watching your life going, something different. God of heaven and earth, they might not say it this way, but they would say, you seem at peace. Things don't seem to worry you the way that I get worried. And like, how are you, you know, how are you okay with like your kids? And your family just seems kind of happy and okay. And like, maybe they're watching your life going, I want that. How is that happening? Perhaps that position of obedience will completely shift your perspective. And the person that you imagine is so far away from God but has actually been watching your life from afar and recognizes God on you. And you might find yourself having a day where you put your head down on the pillow at night going, I did not see that conversation planning out the way that it did. I did not think that conversation was going to happen like that. I wonder if the band could come. I'm going to finish today by asking probably the most important question this morning. Are you in a place of wanting salvation today? And could you change your position and choose to say yes to Jesus? Maybe you've seen and you've heard and you've been about the things of God. Maybe you've been coming to church for a little while or maybe it's even your first Sunday and you've kind of, it's a little bit all new and different for you. But you've kind of seen the things of God from afar and you don't really understand them. But you've been hearing some stories about what God has done for other people. You've been hearing how they've walked through an illness And they've not been afraid in the same way that you would be. Maybe you've seen the difference that Jesus has made in other people's lives. And your life right now, if you were to look at it from the outside, might look totally far away from God. Maybe even opposed to the things of God. 
But I wonder this morning, as we close our eyes, could you choose your position and change it and choose to say yes to Jesus with every eye closed in the place this morning? Could you say yes this morning to the only one who can save your soul? Could you say yes to Jesus who has loved you every day of your life? Could you say yes to the God who knew you even before you were born, who has good plans for your life and wants today to let you step into the hope and the future that he's already planned for you? Could you humble your heart before him and acknowledge your need of him and his saving grace like Rahab did and take that first step on the journey and say, Jesus, I need you. I can almost guarantee that after Rahab had had that conversation, she didn't go downstairs and immediately throw out everything that was to do with her worship. But that as she ended up being grafted into the family of God, she would have worked that out, would have been walked out within a family. That's what becoming a Christian is. It's bowing your knee saying, I can't do this on my own. I don't want to do this on my own. I acknowledge, Jesus, that you're Lord and Savior, and I want you to save my soul. And then all the other bits get worked out within the family. All the other bits, we walk it out in relationship. And because of Rahab's decision, she ends up being the great-grandmother of King David, and eventually she's included in Jesus' family history. And that just goes to show that nobody is too far from God. Nobody is too far away. Jesus welcomes everybody into his family, but it does require a change of position from you. Jesus has extended. He's done everything. He sacrificed his life on the cross for you. He has paid the price for all the bad things that all of us have done. He's extended the invitation, and yet it needs a change of position and a yes from your heart to say, Jesus, I want you, for you to bow the knee to Jesus recognize your need of him and say yes so if that's you today we always want to give an opportunity and you want to do that you want to say yes to Jesus or maybe you said yes to Jesus a long time ago but you've walked away and today you find yourself back in church and you want to resubmit to Jesus you want to say I've done things in my own way and it's not worked out but today I'm saying yes again if that's you would you be really brave as every eye is closed in this place would you raise your hand then I can see I know who I'm praying for this morning as I look across. We always want to give an opportunity every service. Amazing. Awesome. I see that hand. That's great. Fantastic. Lovely. You can put your hand down. So good. Amazing. All right, let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, I recognize my need of you. I know that you are the Savior of the world and the Savior of my soul. Today I shift my position, I bow my knee, and I say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we celebrate those people who said yes this morning? Amazing.